Thank you for joining us. For your encouragement, we bring to you this biblical sermon from Dr. Charlie Dates, preached at the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. We hope that it leaves you refreshed and inspired. If you're ever in Chicago on a Sunday, we'd love to have you in worship with us. Join now. This message already in progress. All right, I'm going to preach a passage today I've never preached in my life. There are a number of those, but over the 20 years that I've been preaching, I have never preached the narrative of David and Goliath. And today we turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want to begin reading at verse 33. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It's the longest narrative in all of 1 Samuel. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to trust that some of you actually like know a little bit about the story. And I'm going to pick up at verse 33 and go down to verse 50. When y'all got it, can you say, I got it? I just missed that. I, I missed that. Here we go. Beginning at verse 33. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. And whenever a lion or bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. You can tell David's talking about this as if it happened more than once. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. <laughs> then Saul and his own military had his own military clothes put on David. He put on a bronze helmet on his head and had him put on armor. And David strapped his sword over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff, his shepherd gear, in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then, with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here. The Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh over to the birds of the sky and the wild beast. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I will strike you down remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. 
then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David pulled his, put his hand in the bag and took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without a sword. My, my. That's some good Bible reading right there. I want to tag this text in our exchange today, looking at this narrative. I want to talk from the thought, the odds are in our favor. You may be seated. I want to talk about the odds are in our favor. Will you bow, please, and breathe a word of prayer with me? Oh God in heaven, we do thank you and honor you and praise you for this privilege. I want to thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. I'm going to ask now that you will do for me what you've done so many times before. and Give me clarity of mind, concision of speech, and conviction of heart so that I may tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we've seen it before in Scripture. It's a theme, perhaps a rhythm we've come to see repeated. God likes to use the unlikely, the outnumbered, and the underdog. I think that's what we can say when... Uh, we saw Gideon defeat an entire army with a shrinking group of men. Down to three hundreds, he took down all of the Midianites. Because God likes to use the unlikely, the outnumbered, and the underdog. Not only did we see that with Gideon and his army, we saw it also with Jonathan a few chapters before this in 1 Samuel, where he and his armor bearer alone go and fight off the Philistine and ward off their camp. Two men took down 40 plus men because God likes to use the unlikely, the outnumbered, and the underdog to prove his power. It is actually God's MO, as it were, to use weakness to triumph over strength. It's our more human, earthly, pavement level perspective that tries to use our own strength to overcome our own obstacles. And we tend to relegate God to a last resort rather than our first choice. I know I'm preaching already, even though some of you aren't saying anything back to me because that's kind of how you've lived your life. When your back has been up against the wall and you faced an insurmountable circumstance, your mind undoubtedly wavered to how can I fix this first? Because we tend to use our own power, 
our own might and our own strength to accomplish victories when we face triumph. But God, God likes to use the unlikely, the outnumbered, and the underdog working through weakness to triumph over strength. Here we are this morning at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Haven't we been on a journey, church? From 1 Samuel chapter 8, the rise of King Saul, tall and handsome above all others, coming to this scene of a young shepherd boy who shows up at a real battle scene. And it is a battle scene. I wish, if you've never been to our church, I hope you'll come to Chicago and come tour with us. In the lower level, we have these fantastic murals of scenes of scripture. And one of them in the Old Testament run is a young David about to slay a giant. And in the scene, it's pictured perfectly from scripture. Young David is in a valley. Because when this battle takes place, both armies are on opposing hilltops. It's a strategic scene because fighting from the hilltops gives the advantage to the most patient army. If an army drops down into the valley, then the other army at the top can easily tackle them or embrace them or kill them as they approach closer. So what the Philistines have done is that they've come to a strategic place and they've taken their champion, their, their man in the middle, to stand down in the valley and to do a kind of representative battle. This is the taunt. The deal is one brave soldier will come fight the one champion of the Philistine army. And whoever wins, the Israeli soldier or the Philistine soldier, their victory is applied to their nation. And their defeat is applied to their nation. Whoever wins, they represent the nation. Stand there for a moment. Picture this scene with me. Forty days, this giant of a figure is belting out one insult after the next. And he is a giant. I mean, this is remarkable. Uh, the text says that he's over nine feet tall. There are other passages in the Bible that refer to his height in varying dimensions. But I just want to say to you, the point is, he's tall. <laughs> and not only is he tall, he's, he's heavy. He's imposing. Many scholars tell us that the average height of an Israelite man during this time was right under six feet. I mean, if Saul were six feet three, he, were, he was a very tall man. Goliath, by all estimations, is over nine feet tall. Can you imagine this morning, Charlie, my son, facing Shaquille O'Neal? And Goliath seems to have two feet on top of Shaq. Or Amari facing uh, Andre the Giant. It's, it's unlikely. It, it doesn't seem to fit. And there they are. The, the children of Israel are scared and their taller than tall king is sitting in repose, hiding in his tent. He's the figure that's taller than all of the others and he's not out there fighting. And so Goliath says after 40 days, aren't one of you going to come and fight me? We can end this whole shenanigan, this whole battle by someone coming to face me. And there they are, the children of Israel, suspended between fear and fate. Enter in now, young David. 
David actually shows up not because he's a warrior. David shows up because his father is sending him to deliver groceries to his brothers who are out on the battlefield and to deliver cheese, or 10 cheeses, to a general. And he wants word as to how the camp of Israel is doing. Bring back a good report. So David comes to deliver the groceries to his older brothers. And, and like a little boy, David gets caught up in the drama of the whole battle. He's young. He's small, he's intrigued, but he's anointed. He has a power upon him that no one else has. And after making inquiries as to the prize of the person who's going to defeat the general, the, the champion, the man in the middle, well, David ends up suiting up, rejecting the king's armor, grabbing his own stones and David slings his stone and kills the giant, and the giant falls face down, flat on the ground. And that's how the story goes. Or really, is that how the story goes? Many of us think that's exactly what the story is, because that's how we've heard it all of our lives. And I just confess to you, all of my adult preaching ministry, I've never preached this story. This story has often been relegated to children's church. It's just a story we tell the kids. You are young. God will use you. You can face your giants. And you've heard all of those stories about the giants, right? Giants are things that you cannot conquer in your own life. And we've named out giants and Goliaths. And we've called out in metaphor all kinds of giants and all kinds of big imposing figures. And we've made this story about a courageous kid who went to face his Goliath and he took his giant down. Maybe you've even heard some of the allegorical references to the five stones. David went and chose five smooth stones from the riverbed. Those stones have represented everything from obedience to courage to hope. And, and we've named all of the stones as if the stones were what took the giant down. And, and we hadn't even thought that David really only used one of the five stones. So what about the other four? Which one of those metaphors actually took the giant down? And then I, like many of you, read Malcolm Gladwell a few years ago as he described exactly what happened in this story. He was smitten by it, taken by it, and, and Gladwell actually scientifically tried to prove what happened. He concluded that the centrifugal force of the stone thrown at the speed from which David was running, at the angle at which the giant approached David, made this defeat humanly possible. And there Gladwell gave to us a kind of human explanation because this defeat is not humanly possible. That's the point. That's, that's the problem with the way many of us have heard this story preached down through the years. That's the challenge that greets you and me as we run into this text. This defeat was humanly impossible for David. And you too are going to run upon moments in your life where your victory is humanly impossible. I know I'm preaching to some people who've got means. You've saved more money during this pandemic than you thought were even possible. 
I'm, me, I'm, I'm preaching to some of you who've got more degrees than the thermometer. Your options are open. And as soon as this pandemic is done, all of the job opportunities around the country and around the world are going to open to you. I'm preaching to some of you who are so good looking, you have your choice of whatever human being you want whenever you want it. But the day will come where your money, your degrees, your good looks will fail you because all that you have will not amalgamate together, will not come together to give you something to take down what's impossible for you. And when that moment comes, I want you to remember what I'm saying to you in this passage. In this story, this story is not meant to say that me and you are David. But this story says we got someone like David whom God uses to take down our greatest impossibilities against all odds. This story says that you and I need a man in the middle to face the giant that is impossible for us to take down. And I want to say to you today that that's actually, I think, the point of this text, that God saves his people not by the might and the strength of his people, but God saves his people by weakness and what looks like human weakness so that at the end, God is the hero of your story, not you. I wish somebody heard what I just said. And I want to be careful to highlight this in a, in a theocentric view from a Godward perspective because much of our Christian preaching these days could really pass off for self-help talk. We come to the preaching and, and we tell you, you can do all things. We lift you up, we applaud you, we, we prod you rather, and we prop you up and we send you out to face a world so that you think that you can, just with a few scriptures and just with a few mild, pious words, defeat whatsoever in front of you. But can I tell you that if we send you from church thinking that you got the power, that you are David, that you will somehow face your giants and conquer everything, it, it ain't going to work out. Too good for you. Most of us never face a giant <laughs> in our lives. I mean, we spend our times like I spent my summer dodging bees, swatting flies. And if by chance you do face a giant like Goliath, how, how many are you going to face? David faced one. I think, friends, the impetus of this text is to say, slow down and stop trying to be the hero of your own story. Stop trying to take down stuff you don't have the power to take down. You at home saying, I'm going to win this time. I'm going to defeat this struggle this time. I'm going to overcome this time. When really what you need to say is, I'm a little kid owned by a big giant, and if God doesn't come get me, I'm done. Listen to me here, friends. The question becomes, how do we see God fighting our battles? That's a good question. I want to just lay out a few things for you in this narrative, and I'll be in my seat. I, I want to say, first of all, that God fights for us when it is impossible for us to win. That, that's where we, we get at. I, I have uh, often read this narrative and read it with great anticipation and great enthusiasm and have been uh, taken by what it has had to say. 
but I've often missed what greets us at the curtain raising of this passage. Here it is in verse 1, the Philistines have gathered their forces together for war at Sokka and Judah. Where is that at? It's in where? Judah. I'm going to read that one more time. The Philistines in verse 1 gathered their forces for war at Sokka and Judah. In where? In Judah. Camp between Sokka and Azekah. That's, that's really important. And Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped together at the Valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill between them. And then came the champion, which literally means the man in the middle named Goliath from Gath. He came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. Here it is. He wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders his spear and his shaft like a weaver's beam. And the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds by itself. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. The, the Bible's not trying to waste time. The, the, the narrator is actually setting this up to say something amazing to me and you. Watch this. The children of Israel lack the military sophistication to develop real weapons of war. The only person who actually has bronze or iron on the children of Israel's side is the king. The rest of them have weapons likely of wood and stone. The Philistines are so advanced that they have, my man has on, armor that weighs 125 pounds. It's not just armor, but it's bronze and iron. His breastplate are made of tiny pieces until they consider it like the scales of a fish, which means he can move around and be agile while nothing can penetrate through his sophisticated military weaponry. Are y'all with me? But if you are strong enough, maybe you could get down to his legs, but his shins are covered with iron and bronze. His, his spear is like a weaver's beam, which literally is to suggest he's so big, he's the only one really who can carry his spear. It takes two hands to hold what he could hold with one hand. And, and if by chance you could get to that, you got to get through the guy who's holding up one of the doors of our sanctuary, a shield in front of him. Here is the idea. You ain't going to get this guy. Not with wood and stones. But it gets even more interesting. I asked you to notice the geography, didn't I? I asked you where they were gathered. They were gathered in Judah. What are the Philistines doing in Judah? Friends, I want to suggest to you that this is a geographical defeat too, that so much of what Joshua had conquered through his promised land conquest, Israel now is seen as losing ground. They are moving backward rather than moving forward. And here during all of this, where is their king who is taller than the rest of them? If anybody should be out there fighting, shouldn't it be them? And, and, and didn't they ask God for a king? Where's all the God talk now? See, see friends, this is how it works. When, when circumstances Saying possible to defeat, we got all the God talk in the world. 
But when you run up against an impossibility, that's when all that God talk goes out the window. Oh, yeah, we, we've seen people praise God when they got some money in their pocket. When you got your health, when you got your strength, when life is going your way. We, we teach children to worship God when the sun is shining and when the roses are blooming. God's a big God when things are going well. But, but what about when things are not going well? Where's the God talk then? Where's the God talk in 1 Samuel 17 when you're facing a giant? You know what these guys are doing? They're hiding. They are running from an uncircumcised Philistine. Friends, that's the very scenario in which God delights in showing up for his people. God does not necessarily always get the credit when things are well. And so sometimes God will wait for the sky to go dark. He will wait for the moment to, to see when your back is up against the wall to when you have run out of options and you have no one else to call, no more doctors to see, no more hope left in the canister. It's in that moment when you need to raise your gaze because God likes to fight for us when it is clearly impossible for us to win. I think of those marchers in Montgomery. In 1955, when they were fighting for fair seating on the Montgomery bus system. You, you remember that, don't you? You remember when Dr. King and Ralph Abernathy and the Montgomery Improvement Association formed and pulled together this bus boycott. They didn't think it would go much more than a couple months, maybe. People were driving by throwing urine on the people who were walking, refusing to get on the buses. They had developed a carpool system. You remember that, don't you? Maybe you remember when Dr. King's house got bombed. When he was at a meeting and his wife and her friend were at home and the bomb blew up the front porch, but Coretta and her friend had just got away from the front porch in just enough time before the bomb struck. And you, you can feel the collective fatigue mounting upon these people moment after moment, month after month. And then they are sitting in court because now they have been taken to court for an unlawfully organized protest. And just when they are taken to court, some 350 days they have been marching and walking and not getting on the bus. Just when Dr. King is about to be taken to jail, word comes from the Supreme Court right when they were about to give up, that seating had to be equal in Alabama. Friends, let me suggest to you that when you feel fatigued, when you're doing what you know is right, but you're weary in doing what you know is right, when it, when it looks like you're not going to win, when, when the pandemic seems like it's never gonna go away and we're all tired of this and we're all tired of that, when the sky gets dark, you ought to check your watch God is a few moments away from bringing deliverance. God fights for us. I don't know who needs to hear this, but I want to stand here for a moment and, and tell you God is fighting for you when it seems impossible for you to win. God does this 
in part to uphold the magnificence of his glory because you belong to him. Somebody here needs to hear me say this. You belong to him. And you can tell that David grabs hold of something that the children of Israel have forgotten. Look at them there in verse 10. And then I'll show you again in verse 26. Verse 10, the Philistine says, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. Listen, I defy the ranks. Go down with me to verse 26. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? <laughs> I, I can't linger long, but let me just let me just highlight the language of Goliath and then the language of David. Goliath declares his defiance against Israel in verse 10. And the reason that doesn't move some of us is because we don't realize that that word defy, that, that statement, I'm going to take down Israel, is actually a mocking against God. What Goliath says is what most of our enemies do not realize. When Goliath messes with Israel, he's actually challenging God. I want to suggest to you that people would leave us alone if they realized when they took a shot at us, they were actually initiating war with God. And what Goliath is saying here is, forget Israel, who can protect Israel against me? David comes around. David says, just who does this? You got to love it. Uncircumcised Philistine think he is. Y'all know what it means to be circumcised, right? No, don't just go to the mere physical. The, to be circumcised in the Old Testament was a sign of the covenant. It was an indication that, that people belong to God. And while the children of Israel were looking at Goliath from the top down, while they were looking at him from the, the top of the hill at his stature, David was looking at Goliath from the bottom up. David was saying, this guy shouldn't be running his mouth. Because he ain't on God's side. And what God will do sometimes is that God will deliver you. Not because you are good, but because his name is on you. And when God says, that's my child, God takes that personally. And I don't know how you all feel about that, but I hope you start to feel better about that. I hope you appreciate this. You belong to somebody. You are not orphaned. You are not by yourself. You are not left to fend in this world with your own resources. You've got somebody who claims you, someone who owns you, someone who will fight the skin off of others who come against you. You belong to the Lord. That's what it means to be part of the covenant. I want y'all to hear me in here. The people are looking at Goliath's size, but David is looking at God. Whereas our impossibilities may be too much for us, friends, they are never too much for God. But I want to suggest to you, as I prepare to move toward my clothes, that God fights for us when it seems impossible for us to win. God fights for us to uphold the magnificence of his glory. But, but, but do you mind if I tell my own testimony for a moment? God will fight for us because his hand is on us. This text is intriguing to me 
It has been intriguing to me from my youth. And, well, I'm on the verge of 40. And so those 20s and 30s are just about, 20s long gone. 30s are just about in the rearview mirror. And I know what it's like to be young, rising up in leadership. I know what it's like for people to look down on you because you're young. They mean well. And I remember first coming to this church just about 10 years ago. I had just celebrated my 30th birthday. And one sister, she means well, would hug me on a regular basis, just about pat my head and tell me how much I could be her grandchild. There, there are a lot of obstacles that young people sometimes have to overcome. Young people who are called to serve and lead. And I want to say to you, young people who are watching, don't despise your youth and don't let someone else despise your youth. If God's hand is on you, your assignment means everything to God and you don't have to worry about people who push you to the margins or who look down upon you because you don't yet fit the bill. That was the, the issue with David. Davis, Davis, the only one of his brothers, left at home. The rest of his brothers are out. His father puts him on assignment and says, hey, go take this food to your brothers. And bring me back a report. And he gets there. And when David gets there, he sees the Israelites. Scared. And David comes in. What y'all scared for? Get down, David. Get down. David gets down. Okay, okay. What? What's going on? He's going to kill us. David says, who? Who's going to? Get down, David, get down. Eliab says, what are you doing here anyway? You should be at home looking after those three little sheep we got. David says, daddy sent me. Do y'all hear what that guy is saying? He's, he's defying God. Shh, David. This is 40 days. You didn't come out here. You're going to get us killed. I want to know, what does the person get who kills this guy? David, if you don't shut up, we're going to have some real problems. Don't you know we're bigger than you? We're stronger than you? The generals know more than you do. What makes you think you're going to come out here and get in the fight? David says, I want to know what's going to happen to the person who kills this guy. Somebody texts the general, said, there's a guy out here who wants to fight. Saul says, bring him to me. Look at David. Short, little, ruddy kid, having played his harp already for King Saul. Young man, you want to you wanna fight the giant? I can fight him. I, I can fight him, and the Lord will give him to me. What, what makes you think? That the Lord's going to give this guy. Don't, don't you know you're a boy? You see these references again and again? See how small? They're all looking at David from the outside. But we learned last week that you can't measure a man from the outside. You got to have eyes to see what's on the inside. And, and David says, I know I can beat him because I've seen this before. Say, you fought a giant before? No, I ain't never fought a giant before. But I have looked after my daddy's sheep. And a few, few times, a lion came up and snatched one of the sheep. And a bear, I'm looking at y'all, y'all looking at me like I'm making this. Y'all ever seen a lion? Lion, really? No, you ever seen a lion? 
And David says, the lion came up and I ran up on the lion and I tackled him by his hair and I pulled the sheep out. And when the lion raised up on me, I took him with my own hands and the same God that let me kill a lion and a bear will deliver this lion to my hands today. David says, I got a testimony. I've been to the bottom. I know that God is able to deliver. I may not have seen this one, but he's just like the rest of them. And the bigger they are, the harder they will fall. Saul says, okay. There's some humor in this story too. This great big old giant, and they're going to let a little boy go fight this big old giant. But you better be careful when you're on assignment from God. It don't matter how big you are, how, how much you got. David, David says, I'm putting on this armor saw, but it don't fit. You are extra long. I'm a regular. You take that back. I'm going to take my staff. David goes, and he gets five smooth stones. And David starts to look. This is where the language gets really interesting. David starts to look at that Philistine, and the Philistine says, Am I a dog that you should come against me with sticks and stones? But David has something else going on in his mind. David remembers that God has done something, and David has rehearsed his testimony. And I need to say to some of you, we don't have enough of that in church sometimes. Too many of you have been remarkably delivered by God. God has done some amazing things and you ain't told nobody. And, and there are other people walking around in fear of their circumstance and they don't even know they're sitting on the same pew with somebody who's been through worse and God has delivered them. You need to learn how to tell your story. I want to suggest to you that you are immortal until God is through with you. Oh, you're going to beat anything until God says it's over. I know what I'm talking about. I wrestled Deacon Carl with telling this story. I'm not naming no names. But I, I, I'm not telling you this story to make a big deal about me. I just want to testify since David testified. All my life, I have felt called to preach and to pastor. I would go some Sunday nights when I was on staff at Salem. Kirstie and I would go. God's my witness. We would go to fellowship some Sunday nights and sit in the balcony and watch Charles Jenkins preach and enjoy church. And I, I would say to myself, you know, I, God, I feel like there are many doors open to us, but I feel like you're calling me to an old historic black church and, and to see things shift around. I, I was young then, I'm 27, 28, didn't know what the Lord was going to do, kind of impatient at times, but, but yet reminded to be still, be steady. And, and then God called me to this church and 2010, I won't forget it, in December of 2010, Jarvis Sanford called me and he said, man, uh, the, the, the church has selected you to be their candidate. And I, I said, really, really? Like, how did this happen? Because I'd never been to this church. I had never preached at this church. I didn't even know what the inside of the church really, in one sense, fully looked like. And to make matters more interesting, I'm young, man. Are we sure that that great historic church Wants a young guy? He says, I don't know what the Lord is doing. Just, just come on and check it out. And I went through the process and God started blessing our work. Oh man, it brings serious minds. He started blessing my work. No, no, the church did not blow up by 3,000 people in our first year and reached 5,000 and all the metrics that people look to. But, but for who I am, 
and for where the church has been, things started to happen. Th things started to happen slower than I wanted them to and faster than I thought they would. And some people got angry, Deacon Carl. Oh, they got angry. Some people got angry in remarkable ways, Jamal. They, they started to do small things to get under my skin. They started to plant stuff on me that was not mine and blame me for things I had nothing to do with, things that I never brought to the pulpit. I remember one time a group of exiled former leaders at this church tried to take me to court. It never went public. Deacon Sanford knows I'm telling the truth. He and I talked about it. And, and they, they wanted to wrestle the church back because they felt like somehow, some way I had come in and had taken over too soon. And here I am, this young guy, just believing I've been called by God to preach at this church, to do God's work, and things are happening. And here I am, scared, because I'm about to get taken to court. And I don't even know what I have done wrong. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. But I'll never forget the way Sanford told me the story. He told it to me with a chuckle in his voice and a sparkle in his eye. He said, you know what happened? He said they went to the first lawyer. And the first lawyer told them how much it would cost. And they politely excused themselves and walked out. He said they went on to another lawyer. But the timing didn't line up, so they didn't do it. But they kept on, and they went to a third lawyer. And that third lawyer said, who's the pastor at that church? And they said, Charlie Davis. He said, oh, no, I'm not touching him. Y'all can leave my office right now. I heard that story, and I thought to myself, here is God protecting me in a way that I don't even know he's protecting me at a time. All I'm doing is doing what I know to do. I, I don't even know what else to do other than what I'm doing. But it gets better. Kiersey and I, earlier on, right when we got married, we... We linked up with an attorney in the city who was very much like a godfather in one sense to us. It just helped us. And I called him to tell him the story. I said, man, you won't believe they, they went after three lawyers to get me. And the third lawyer they went to asked them, who's the pastor? And, and the lawyer heard who the pastor is, that it was me. And he said, oh, I'm not touching him. And he smiled. He said, Charlie, I, I may or may not be that lawyer. I wish y'all heard me in here today. What Kiersey and I didn't know is that years before we had linked up with somebody who others would try to take us down through. And at that moment, God had already set somebody else up and we never heard from those people again. Now watch this. I'm not trying to tell y'all this for any glory of my own, but what I can tell you is that when God sends you somewhere and he appoints you for a work and he anoints you for that work, other people may try to fight against you, but when they try to fight against you, you got record that God has delivered you time and time again. Is there anybody here that knows that God will fight your battles? God will stand up on your side and look now at what the Lord has done. I wish y'all heard me. I said, look now at what the, we just gave away 200 laptops this week to CPS students who could not afford them. And when I walked off from one of those schools and a little girl was crying because she realized she didn't have to give the laptop back to the school, but it belonged to her. And in a pandemic, God is using us to do real ministry. Look at what God, look at what he's done. 
And I'm here today to tell you some more y'all need to tell your story. You need to rehearse about how God has brought you through and tell your kids so that they don't think they live in that house because you got money. Tell your grandkids so that they don't think that all is well because you went to school. Sit them down and tell them if it had not been for the Lord who was on my side, circumstances would have swallowed me up a long time ago. Listen now, I'm, I'm in my seat. I'm in my seat when I tell you that David says if God could take care of me, from a lion and a bear, he could do it. Now, I know some of y'all listening to me saying, Pastor Charlie, you really believe that? I get this from time to time. You really believe that Bible? I say to you, I got no other way to explain my life. I, I know you think with the degrees I have, I shouldn't be talking, talk like this. But I can tell you this, you're going to face a lion one day. It might not be Simba or Mufasa. It might be divorce court. It might be some health challenge. And when you get there, you're going to discover that the smart people trust God. That, that the wise people know it's someone bigger than them who's taking care of their circumstances. But I, I got to leave you. You've been very patient with me. I got to leave you. I got to tell you that God is fighting for us. Especially when it seems like it's impossible for us to win. God is fighting for us to uphold the magnificence of his own glory. God will fight for you because his hand is on you and, and, and he's got an assignment for your life. But, but finally, God will fight for you when you learn how to use his name. Oh, no, no, y'all didn't hear me. I said when you learn how to use his name. Look, look at this in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel, and you have defied him. Look at David with all of the swag in his step, all of the hope in his heart. And he says, Goliath, you talking about how strong you are, you bringing attention to how tall and successful you have been. But I got something else. I got a name. And that name is the Lord of Hosts. Y'all don't mind if I talk about that name real fast. It's a striking name. You need to remember this. I try to say it enough so you can memorize it for yourself. It's the covenantal name of God. The name is Yahweh. Names are usually nouns, but this name, Yahweh, the Lord, is a verb. It's stuck in the present tense. You know, nouns can be past, present, and future. Was, is, will be. But the name of God is not was. And the name of God is not will be. The name of God is, is. That, that might not mean a whole lot to you. Keep on living. It's, it's going to mean something to you. Uh, this, it, it's what Elton Trueblood calls the eternal now. What, what Kenneth Ulmer, Bishop Ulmer calls the perpetual isness of God. You, you, you don't have to anticipate 
God to be. You, you don't even have to live at God was. God is so amazing, he lives outside of time and space. He just is. He, he lives in the present. So that means when you get to the future, he's already there. That, that, that's what B.J. Tatum used to say to us. When you're in the right now, God is in the not yet. And when you get to the not yet, God has moved on to the no longer. God is leaving where God is going. He, he has an amazing name. And I know sometimes I preach and y'all clap because you're like, oh, that story was cute. Or you go, oh, that's nice. But let me suggest to you that the name of God ain't some preacher cliche. Yeah, yeah, the time will come in your life where you actually got a call on the name. And, and you'll recognize in that moment, I wasn't trying to tickle your ear. I, I wasn't trying to get a cheap amen. I, I wasn't trying to get you to, to jump and shout so that I could feel good about myself. No, I'm trying to put some meat on your faith bones. I'm trying to tell you, you better learn how to use the name of God. And, and I could say the names of God. Because God has a matching name for every circumstance you'll face. I wish somebody would be honest. Somebody in this room has been healed from something before and you came to know he got a name specific to healing. Oh, oh, somebody else has been in here and you ain't had enough money to get through school or to pay your mortgage or to get that truck paid off or something you needed. And you came to discover God got a name that will provide for you in the moment you need provision. I wish somebody heard me. I have had others trying to attack me and I've come to discover that the Lord has a name where he'll raise up a banner against my enemies so that they cannot take me down. There's a name. I'm trying to tell y'all there's a name. And, and, and I've learned how to use these names. I remember Clayton Harris. I love to tell this. Clayton, for a while, for many years, rather, was the director of the Illinois Port Authority. And he's got a beautiful golf course on his property. One of the most expensive golf courses in our city. When you're a budding golfer like me, you don't spend a lot of money playing on expensive courses because you don't really know what you're doing. But I want to play this course. And Clayton said, hey, Pastor, whenever you want to play this course, just tell me, man. I said, all right, I'll tell you what I do. I want to play, and I I'm going to bring some people with me. Here I am, big baller, shot caller. I got four people, me included, going to play golf at this major golf course. And I, I, I call them, uh, Eric Lindsay was there, Deacon Keenan Salter was there, and Dr. Adrian Robinson was there. I was, as is my custom, the last person to get there. I pulled up, dropped off my club to the valet, I walked inside to buy, buy a, a bunch of golf balls from the clubhouse, and I tucked them away, and I went outside, and I jumped into the passenger seat with brother Eric Lindsay, and we went on up to the Ranger. Now, at these courses, you can't just walk on to the course. After you've checked your bags and you've done what you need to do at the clubhouse, there's still somebody called a ranger who's got authority and he's got a list of names of people who are supposed to be on that course and not and the tea time. And so we got there and the ranger stopped us at the first hole. He said, before you go, I need to be sure that your name is on the list. And so he said, uh, what's your name? And I, <clears throat> Charlie Dates. And he went and he looked. I still remember him flipping the page over, looked again. He said, uh, I don't see that name. I said, are you sure? 
because I don't want to seem like that guy just trying to hustle to get on the golf course. But I also know I ain't necessarily got the money right now to pay for all four of us to get onto this expensive golf course. And, and so, so he says to me again, maybe I got it wrong. Say, say your name one more time. And, and before I could get Charlie out of my mouth, Eric Lindsay hit me in my chest and said, Clayton Harris. Now I thought to myself, Clayton ain't even here. It's me and you, it's them two. And my golf ranger looked, he said, oh, oh yes, come on through. You might not think that means anything. But there have been times in my life where I've tried to use my own name, my own credentials. I flossed who I am trying to get in, but it didn't work. And you're going to come to a point in life where you're going to try to use your name, all of your works, your credentials to get in, and you're going to realize it ain't going to do a doggone thing for you. But when you come to that point, I want to recommend that there is a name that'll get you into where you can't get into. And you, you think I'm just using this to try to get you into a golf course or to a club or, or to a hotel. No, there's another place you're going to try to get into. And all of your work in the world ain't going to let you in. In fact, all of your work in the world is going to be reason to keep you out. And when they ask you for your name, the only way you're going to be able to get in is that there is a name that is above every name. I, I love how Charlie and Claire do it to me. I walked into the house the other day and Claire stood at the door and said, what's the password? And I said, uh, Claire, no. I, I, I said, daddy, no. And Charlie said, dad, the password is Skittles. And I looked at Claire and I said, Skittles. And she dropped her hands and said, you can come in now. I wish somebody heard me. When you get to heaven one day and you're standing before the judgment seat of God, there's a name that is above every name. And his name is Jesus the Christ. And I came by to tell somebody today that, that there was another time we faced a giant. The giant of sin and death. But Jesus stood in the valley. In fact, it was a hill called Calvary. And, and they put nail in his hands. And they put a nail through his feet. And spear in his side. And Jesus died. Didn't he die, y'all? I said, Jesus died. And they laid him in a borrowed tomb. But early on Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its work. Sounds like music to my ears. Oh, how we love the name of Jesus. I want to commend that name to somebody today. If you're trying to get through life on your own, you need a name. There's only one name that'll get you through. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, wherever you are at home, and 
Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that it left you inspired and encouraged. For more information about the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago or Dr. Charlie Dates, please visit ProgressiveChicago.org. Progress is yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ.